The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code ROSS. That's code ROSS for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net in New York. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. You're listening to DraftKings Network. You're tuned in to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Guiding your gridiron journey, none other than your host, former NFL lineman, Ross Tucker. Oh, yeah, it is. But it's not just any Ross Tucker Football Podcast. It's a Monster Monday. It's presented, of course, by DraftKings. Really looking forward to the conversation with Jeff Miller from the NFL, Executive Vice President of Communications, Health and Safety. You guys know I love the sport. I love the NFL. Love talking with him about ways to make the game better, to make the game safer. I mean, these are like, this is a guy that has a heavy influence on rule changes. I still forgot to spread the word winner, sponsor confirmation, email winner, and YouTube shout. Well, YouTube shout I did get to last week. I'll do it at some point this week. I do want to make sure to give a shout out. Our patron of the day, Craig Howe, patreon.com slash RT Media. What a great time of year, by the way, to be able to be a part of our unique community. What a great time of year to go to West Shore Home dot com slash Ross. I think I mentioned last week, I'm actually friends with the owner now. What an incredible business. Ridiculous success story, by the way. I mean, just like started it by himself here in central Pennsylvania. And now there are locations like everywhere. Go to westshorehome.com slash Ross for two reasons. Number one, to check out my house and see the work that I've had done. And number two, to see if they have a location here. I think they have 40, 40 some locations all around. And a lot of you have gotten these and really, really like it. So hopefully you do it again. WestShoreHome.com slash Ross. It's Big Show time. The Big Show. So he joins us, I don't know, at least once a year, maybe twice a year. It's only when you invite me, Ross. <laughs> you know what? I love having you on. He's Jeff Miller, the Executive Vice President of Communications and Player Health and Safety. And I love talking with him for a couple of reasons. Like, I think you know this, Jeff. I am very, very passionate about the sport of football. I love it. I love the things that you're doing globally, that the NFL is doing globally to spread the word. This is not a knock on soccer, but there's. I, I played soccer until I was 12, and then I played football. It's not even close. So I love that we're trying to spread the word globally yeah. and get more people to realize. I want, like, 10-year-olds 
in Africa and South America and everywhere just to at least one time put a helmet and shoulder pads on and run into somebody as hard as they can. It's the best feeling in the world. And what I love about what you guys do is you're you're kind of doing two things at the same time, right? You're number one, trying to spread the word globally. Sure. Number two, you're trying to make it safer and keep the guys healthier in the process. And I think sometimes um, people can be skeptical of the NFL's motives in that regard. But what I would tell them, like, I'm around you guys enough. Mm -hmm. I'm around a lot of the people at the league enough. It's in your best interest to make it safe. Like, even if people are skeptical of motives, like, you, why would the NFL not want the players to stay healthier and not make the game to be healthier and, and safer for people to play? Well, no question. But first of all, I think we need to hire you as an ambassador and send <laughs> you around the world so that you can spread the gospel of football. I can't think of anybody better. And listen, I, I appreciate the fact that you take such an interest in so much of what we do and get underneath it. It's, it's, you know, we do any number of interviews, talk to press all the time, try to explain some of the work we do, especially on the health and safety side, because it's not necessarily X's and O's. Right. And it takes a special, you know, reporter or questioner to sort of get underneath and really try to appreciate and understand it. And you do. And so it, it's always good to have, an, you know, a thoughtful conversation with somebody so, about oh, the work that we're doing. Yeah. But to put your point about making it safer. It really comes down to one basic principle, which is that as we learn more, and sometimes the NFL is in a unique situation to be able to collect information, whether it be injury information or speeds of players or forces when right. they tackle or have an appreciation for equipment or whatever the case may be. As we can learn more and find insights, then of course we're going to translate it to the game because a healthier player is a better player. We definitely care about the athletes, whether they're currently playing or in their, their post-career. And I think we found as we've changed the game over the last few years, a little bit at a time, that the game can be made both safer and better. A lot of what we've done have made has made the game more exciting, and certainly the ratings and all the other things demonstrate that, that when we change rules, when we take certain techniques out of the game, the sorts of things that existed, Ross, when you played, it hasn't changed the quality of the game. In fact, it's probably enhanced the quality of the game. And so when we find those insights to be able to make those changes, excuse me, has really, you know, benefited the sport as a whole. And over time, getting back to your international point, it's going to filter through the culture of football. And I think it's beginning to with the colleges and the high schools and other places. And the game will continue to evolve because that's just the nature of the game. You know what's interesting? And I think this might have predated your time at the NFL. But when they first started to have uh, the penalties for hits to the head of defenseless receivers, mm -hmm. and it was most notable you know, with receivers over the middle of the field. I think a lot of people, maybe even myself included, thought they're they're just never going to be able to change that. It happened so fast. Those guys have been doing that mm -hmm. since they were 10 years old. Like, that's just how they play. It's not going to work. It's worked. Like, if, if you look at college football um, targeting ejections, sure. right, or even the NFL, those penalties, your thesis or the NFL's idea that it would change behavior, you sort of proved that you can change behavior. And now I think because it's been around so long, now like the, the guys that are rookies now, it's been like this for 10 years. So this is kind of all they know. They don't even remember or they don't even know what it used to be like to even think of doing any other way. It, it's absolutely modified their behavior. Yeah, it, it, the, the changes are, are remarkable. And it's also important to remember in the first instance that a lot of the people you're talking about, yourself included, are phenomenal athletes. <clears throat> and their ability to change 
their posture, their behavior, their reaction to different circumstances in nanoseconds right. is really quite a sight to behold. And so as we've gone through that evolution, you mentioned guys coming across the middle and getting hit, yeah. uh, defenseless receivers and such. There's still work to be done in those places because we want to avoid as many of the avoidable head contacts as you can because none of that is good for you. Right. Right. We want to lower that that strike zone. You want to have that target, the shoulders to the top of the knees. You know all of this. Yeah. When we talk about tackling. And it's not necessarily something you can flip a switch with and do overnight, but the players have changed. And more importantly, I think that the culture has changed when I hear from players or coaches or others about a desire to change because they understand the ramifications for some of these behaviors and the benefit to the player in the immediate term, to the health of the team, and then to the long-term health of the player are all foremost in their minds in ways. Ten years ago, you know, what we really didn't know, we didn't know. Right. And so for me, um, you know, I try to keep up with it. It's always funny as a former player. I, I want to know what's going on with the latest research in terms of hits to the head, mm -hmm. but I don't want to dwell on it or spend too much time on it. But as I think you know, uh, I'm close with Chris Nowinski from the Concussion Legacy Foundation, and I saw recently that Dr. Sills and, and maybe yourself as well, you were involved at an event. I don't remember the details. I remember checking it out uh, in the email I got probably, and that uh, I guess you guys came to, I don't know, uh, five facts or five things that, that both the Concussion Legacy Foundation and the NFL universally agreed on. I don't mean to put you on the spot if you don't remember what all five of them were or whatever, but can you tell me what you remember from that event and sort of uh, what the conclusions were? Yeah, we um, the connection point with Boston University, who of course has done a great deal of research on CTE and long-term effects of repetitive head trauma, Right. Um, the connection point between them has existed for, for some time. And obviously any learnings that come from there or anywhere are things that we benefit from. And so Bob Cantu, who is a longtime concussion researcher, right, um, has headed up a lot of the work. And we've had the benefit, we at the NFL have had the benefit of having Bob as one of our advisors over the course of, I don't know, as long as I've been involved in this work. Oh, wow. Yeah, he sits on our Head, Neck, and Spine Committee, which is a, num a number of neuroscientists, yeah. expert in concussion and spine injuries and that sort of thing, that help with our concussion protocol, help design research for us, ask the right questions so that we can pursue answers to them. And so we've been we've benefited from him um, participating for a long period of time. And so anyway, the idea that, uh, that Bob and Alan Sills, our chief medical officer, had were that we really haven't gotten together, we, the NFL, uh, with the BU researchers, with others, and there were many others in the room with all sorts of interests in the space who also had been doing research around CTE or long-term effects of concussion or any number of other scientific questions that you could pose. And so the NFL put an unrestricted grant in and said, okay, why don't we fund something so that we can all get together in a conference room in Boston and talk about this for a day, which, which we did. And at the end of it, the researchers, regardless of where they came from, said, well, some of the same, some of what we really need to focus on here is taking some of the unnecessary hits out of the game, any sport, by the way, right? That can go for soccer, rugby, football. There's a lot of other sports that are on the same trajectory, yeah. doing the same sorts of things that we're doing. But the principle. That's one thing, by the way, people yeah. don't realize even about like soccer and the headers and stuff. Sure. People don't realize. I've seen stats where it's like maybe the the most or the second most is actually uh, women soccer players from heading and stuff, which I didn't realize that. No, no question. And and whether it be soccer or hockey or rugby, whatever the sport is. I think we can all agree that if you can eliminate some of the hits to the head that right. are avoidable in your game, that you should. Yeah. Rules can do that. Behavior can do that. And a, a desire to change the sport to the benefit of the health of the players can do that. And that's really what the, the outcome of this was, 
was an agreement that where we can avoid avoidable head hits and teach people how to go about doing that, that we ought to. And it's a good conversation to have, uh, certainly with any researchers, with any people expert in the space, whether they be with any one university or another. And we, through an independent scientific advisory board, the NFL, that is, fund a lot of research as well. And so those people who were doing some of that research were at this meeting. And any opportunity for scientists to share what they're learning, share what they're pursuing, makes all the sense in the world because it helps you identify what the gaps might be in the science. It helps you identify where there's contradictory outcomes. helps you identify where the researchers are aligned. And then we can take that information back and improve the game, other sports too, uh, for the health of the people who play them. Well, and I can tell you, um, on some level, I'm like a little bit jealous that the rules in the NFL are what they are now. You know, see, we hear that from retired players all the time. But, but in, in fairness, in <laughs> fairness, um, not only did the league not know what they didn't know, certainly we as players did not. You know, it's funny. I retired in 2008, and it felt like all this stuff came out right when I was done, like right, right after I was done. And, uh, um, but I also, uh, it's funny. Just as an aside, I have a big head, like literally, hopefully not figuratively. and uh, People can see that. Yes, yes. And I would use it, right? So I always wonder, like, how would, I, how would, my, how would my play have differed, right? I have short arms but a big head, and I would headbutt guys. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know uh, it's good that we at least have this information and that parents uh, can help make decisions, players in the NFL can help make decisions. But even like I've talked to guys that last five years, like Jason Peters was a teammate of mine in Buffalo, and he just played his twentieth year, whatever. And uh, it really has changed a lot in terms of the amount of contact in practice and the amount of hits to the head. And obviously, you guys have um, the the head protection as well with the guardian caps. Um, and I have not noticed. I know sometimes the coaches will say that it's negatively affected the quality of the product I, I have a tough time feeling that way I understand why coaches feel that way and maybe early in the season if you squint you can say that but I, I think most people if you really love the sport like I do you would say it's very much for the positive even if there is a little bit less practice time or contact in practice well a lot of that when you left the game in 2008 and we changed the rules around practice we're governed by our collective bargaining agreement and our work with the players right. association you know, the, the world of two-a-day contact practices is, is ancient history. Right. Right. And you hear from retired players all the time, look, if the rules were now- I'd still be playing. I'd still be playing. <laughs> right. And maybe some, some people would. Um, but it's not just that. It is, the limitation on, on contact practices obviously encourages the ability to coach and teach the game a little bit differently because you have to for the players who need yeah. you know, for their skill development. But also, we're talking 50-plus rules changes at this point designed to help for health and safety over the last 10 years or so. You mentioned defenseless receivers. We can talk about crackback blocks or wedges yeah. on kickoffs oh, man. or the kickoff as a whole and what sort of challenges we saw on that. Or you can talk about equipment, right? We started working with a, with um, a number of different scientists um, in biomechanical engineering to take a look at the helmet and say, okay, well, what can we learn about what's happening on field at the NFL that might inspire the helmet manufacturers to take real data that we collect, the speeds, the locations, the magnitudes, the, the frequency of helmet impacts, where they cause the biggest um, hits and therefore concussions oftentimes, and change the helmet to better protect the player. And over the last few years since we started this work, and we share all of this research with the helmet manufacturers, we publish everything, all the scientists are independent, all of that is done with great integrity. We've seen helmets improve at nine times the rate that they were improving before in terms of mitigating wow. forces. 
So when you say, are players safer on field? The answer is yes. Not safe per se. Obviously, there's always going to be yeah. another place to go. But we've gotten to helmets that are better. Players are wearing the helmets that are better as more and more come on field. This next year is an example. On that point, we will see as many as eight new helmets introduced by the helmet manufacturers that are designed for the specific positions that players play. So a quarterback suffers hits to the head in, and potentially injuries in ways different than an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman do. Yet for years, they wore the same equipment. Why? Right? If a quarterback suffers a concussion most often when the back of his head hits the ground, he's yeah. getting sacked and he's holding the ball, yeah. right? And he can't protect himself and therefore the back of his head hits the ground. A lot of the impacts need to be mitigated in the back. An offensive lineman feels most of it right on the right on his forehead, right yeah. on the bridge of his scalp because of the, the regular repetitive play after play contact that he has with a defensive lineman. But their helmets were the same. Why can't we design, why can't the manufacturers design something to better protect both of those players? It's amazing that nobody ever thought of that years ago, right? And by the way, for people watching us on the DraftKings Network or on YouTube, we do have a helmet here, which makes me think, uh, what what have what do we know so far about Mahomes' helmet from the divisional round game? Or no, that would have been the wild card round game against the yep. Dolphins. That very it's, cold night. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I Jeff, it was so cold that I was in the booth. On radio. Were you Western there? One. Oh, wait, Western yeah. One, yeah. Thank goodness I was in the booth and not on the sideline. But as I would talk, you know, your breath hits the window. Yeah. It would freeze. Yeah. My breath would freeze. So my my thought, although I guess it didn't happen for anybody else, my thought is just that, you know, whatever testing you can do, they can't do it at like negative 30. Like how, how are you testing for a helmet at negative 30? But anyway, just your thoughts on, on the Mahomes helmet. Of all people, by the way, for that to happen to. Well, it's interesting. He, he, he's wearing uh, one of the quarterback-specific helmets that came out last year uh, by a company called Vices, which is a newer yeah. company. And it, it, I guess the first thing to say is that this it's an incredibly rare occurrence that a helmet right, cracked. Right, right. And the helmet did its job, as the company said, and protected him. But we sent it to um, a bunch of biomechanical engineers. We hired some material scientists to understand, was the fracture coming from the paint? Was the fracture coming from something underneath? To your point around temperature... A lot of the helmets by the manufacturers and by the standard setting organization are are tested against higher temperatures because players play in August and September yeah. and the ambient heat that gets in, you need to understand how, right. how it regulates temperatures. But there isn't a testing against, you know, 15 degrees below zero, whatever it is. So will we have to do that? Either will the league do it or the companies do it? We'll figure that out and do it. Um, obviously, he had a second helmet there and that worked out just fine. But it happened so rarely that we took the helmet. Uh, asked for the helmet from the Chiefs. They happily sent it to our lab, asked our engineers, asked the Players Association engineers to join us because they have consultants who are terrific people too, and said, what can we learn from this so that we can share that information back with the manufacturer so the next time that Ross is on the sideline instead of in the press box, we make sure that this can't happen again. You know, um, I don't think my team's brought an extra helmet for me. I don't, I don't think that was that important that they had a second helmet. Maybe they did. Um, I wanted to ask you, since it's always a popular topic, and last time we had John, it might have been September or August, I think, okay. uh, when we had John. And I asked you about the fields, and I know you get asked about it a lot. Sure. What's What's the response to? Hey, if this is what the NFL Players Association says they want, and this is what quote unquote all the players say, they all want grass. Why not do grass if that's what the players are are requesting? The, the first point to remember in this is this, again, it's a research project just like the helmet work is done. So we put a bunch of money 
to understanding service. So does the Players Association. In fact, we have what we call a Joint Services Committee. So player association experts, doctors, scientists, uh, people familiar with fields, people on our side who do the same, get together regularly, share all the data, and try to understand what's going on with fields. And so it is very much a collaborative effort. We look at injury data, for example, to try to understand whether players are getting hurt in certain fields on certain, uh, certain surfaces, certain injuries. This year, for example, we shared this data the other day. We collect it and we're transparent around it, of course, and the Players Association is too. There was almost no difference between synthetic surfaces. The, 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 the number was 0.001% difference between the two. It would amount to like six or seven or eight injuries over the course of the entire season, more on synthetic right. than on grass. And what I've been saying for a while, or we've been saying for a while, is that we don't think that the surfaces are good enough, either the grass or the synthetic. I think that there's a lot more engineering that needs to go into those. There needs to be a more consistent maintenance of the fields. And a point that is lost often in this debate, which the players really appreciate getting back to your question originally, is that in a, in a league with 30 different stadiums, 32 teams but 30 stadiums, we really have 30 different playing fields because the manufacturer of the, of the synthetic surface or grass, the infill, the padding, the climate, the, you, know, you can go on and on with the variables, make every field feel a little bit different from the one before it. And so one of the goals of our work with the Players Association is to minimize the differences between them, create a, a greater consistency. Because the doctors will tell you that if a player knows what he's going to be stepping on on field, if there is a predictability to how he cuts, how he feels, all that sort of thing, that's going to lead to a lower injury rate. That there is a sort of a neurobiological response, if that's a word, to how the body feels when it steps on a surface. And so if we can get to fewer fields and we make those fields better, which may include, for example, um, hybrid fields, which is what right. FIFA does. They, they have uh, natural grass with a certain percentage of synthetic in it. Maybe there's a place for us to go. So I say to the players, like, look, the injury rate, it changes a little bit year to year, but right now there isn't really a difference. But we right. do understand and have an appreciation for the fact that they feel different. So let's deal with the feel different part and the performance of them as well as the injury part and see if we can get to a better place. And, you know, the, the, the collaboration is really good with the Players Association, and I think we're going to get to a better place relatively soon. Last thing, kickoff rule. Yeah. Um, That's a fun one. We talked about it. Yeah, we talked about it. What was the data from this year uh, that I think you had said when I heard you on one of the seminars that you thought it would go from maybe 38% touchbacks to 31 or – I'm throwing that out there. It's pretty good. Um, something like that. Uh, what, did you, what did you find? We, we missed the mark a little bit on it. So it ended up that – Kicks returned went from 37, 38% down to about 22, 23%. Oh, wow. So it went even, it went, there were less return than there were less thought. return than thought. And we did that because remember the concussion rate on kickoffs, right? Twice as high as any other play in the NFL. Twice as high. And so the competition committee felt, we felt, the owners felt, we have to do something about that. And so what we ended up doing by driving down the return rate was driving down the number of injuries by about 60% on that individual play. That's not a success in our minds. The injury rate being down is great. But what we want to do is find a way to actually incorporate the kickoff back into the game in a way that's exciting. We don't want a 22 or 23% return rate. We want, pick your number, 75%, right? We want you not going, we don't want our fans going to get, you know, a drink. Right. That's not and, good for it's the kickoff. For you why, would you, why would you have a play that isn't fun and exciting and dynamic and interesting and strategic when you can? And so we're working to try to design something 
this offseason. The work will start next week, right after Super Bowl. We have a lot of information because we've studied the play. We've studied where the injuries come from, the speeds of the players. And as you can appreciate on kickoff, the speeds are remarkable. Yep. And therefore, the impacts. It did. We've talked about that. And therefore, the impacts are remarkably high and hence the injury rate. So we we think we can design a play that's going to encourage returns and keep the injury rate more like a run or a pass play and therefore probably a little bit more acceptable to those of us who take a look at these things. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the uh, the XFL rule or whatever is a pretty good – I just – what you have to figure out then is like the onside kick component of it, right? Like that's the – There are other a thousand questions. Do you, allow, do you allow wedge blocks? Do you allow blindside blocks? You know, where, where do you start from if you do a rule like that? But whatever kickoff 2.0 is going to be, it's going to – I think it's going to look different from what we're used to if we can get to some agreement. So there's conversations going on. With the coaches, the special teams coaches, of course, the competition committee. Yep. As you know, we meet intensely at Combine in a few weeks in Indianapolis. The health and safety team with all the research that we'll bring to it, and hopefully we'll be able to design something that when the fans look at it, will be like, all right, now we have a play that is actually worth enjoying and watching and, and is strategic. Always love talking with Jeff Miller, the executive vice president of communications and player and health and safety from the NFL here because I love the sport and I love – Try to make it as safe as possible and as good as possible. Thank you so much as always. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Enjoyed that conversation with Jeff Miller thoroughly. Almost as much I enjoy DiGiorno and knowing that planning a watch party on a budget isn't easy. You know why? You need the perfect setting. It's got to be the ideal squad, perfect eats. Luckily, you're a game time mastermind and you know that grabbing DiGiorno classic crust pizza can bring home a dub. Because it's packed with half a pound of cheese sauce, other toppings, and comes at an incredible price. Make the game-winning call and grab a DiGiorno Classic Crust Pizza from the grocery store today. It's not delivery. It's DiGiorno. And then yummy, yummy, in my tummy. That should be the new tagline for Labatt Blue Light. That was me all weekend long while I was skiing with my family, living life to the power of we, always enjoying it responsibly, Beer, Labatt, USA, Buffalo, New York. Tomorrow, we will have a new Even Money podcast. Wednesday, I don't even know what we're going to do. I still need to get to the Hall of Fame and the honors ceremonies. Give you my thoughts on that. Man, we've been jam-packed recently. I think we're done here. Thanks for tuning in to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Make sure to also check out Even Money, Fantasy Feast, and College Draft, all on the DraftKings Network, YouTube, or subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Shout out myfrontpagestory.com. Here's my new thing. If you get one of these for anybody, but especially a grandparent, I will send you a signed autograph. Myfrontpagestory.com. Please get it for a parent or a grandparent. It is a timeless gift that they will truly appreciate. Backoffwithschedule.com, SteakhouseSports.com, HumanHeadNYC.com, Sporticulture, Pizza Boy Brewing.